appreciate everyone's presence this evening. Hope you brought, brought your Bibles with you. Whether you got them in this format or uh, on your phone or electronic device, we're going to do a little Bible study tonight. We've been talking about the use of the Old Testament in the New. We want, we want to handle the Word of God correctly. We want to understand how to handle the Word of God, how to understand it correctly, and of course, how to teach it correctly as well. You might remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that we are to present ourselves as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Or we could say, handling correctly the word of truth. But one thing that suggests to us is that there is an accurate way to handle the word and an inaccurate way to handle the word, or a correct way to handle it and an incorrect way to handle it. And so we want to do our best to handle it correctly. Have you ever been engaged in a conversation with anybody about the Bible or about spiritual things or about, about the gospel, your religious commitments, and, and have somebody say, oh, I, I, I know you. Y'all you, you, don't believe in the Old Testament. I've had that statement said to me, oh, I, I know you don't believe in the Old Testament. And of course, that's not exactly true, is it? Now, it is true that we believe that, or I believe, that the Old Covenant has been taken away and a new covenant has been established. That's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9. I've come to do your will, the Lord says. Christ takes away the first in order to establish the second. And so the first covenant with its law, the law of Moses, has been taken away. And so we're not bound by the Old Testament law. We don't, uh, we don't uh, practice its rituals or its customs or uh, practice its practices. Uh, uh, but, and so we don't do that, yes. It's not accurate. It's not true to say, oh, you, you don't believe in the Old Testament. Just not true at all. We do believe in handling the Word of God correctly. And we would suggest that we need to study and put some work in and some effort into understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another passage comes to mind, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In this passage, of course, Paul would have in mind the Old Testament, if not the New Testament, certainly the Old Testament, when he says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete, equipped for every good work. And so the Scripture is profitable. It's profitable for these things, for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. You might recall Hebrews chapter 4 as well. And again, speaking at least he would have the Old Testament in mind when he says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Word of God, whatever is the Word of God, is living and active, and I take him just to be saying, is powerfully relevant. The Word of God is relevant to your life. And that's Old Testament is relative to, relevant to our life, as well as New Testament. Now the Old Covenant has been taken out of the way, as we said. A New Covenant has been established. And so we don't carry on the practices and ceremonies and rituals and laws of the Old Covenant. 
But it is relevant to our life, and we find there material that's profitable for us, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Now, in previous lessons, we saw how the, New Te- the Old Testament teaches us about Christ. It's profitable for teaching and instruction. One of the things it does is it teaches us about Christ. We looked at three samples of that. For example, Isaiah 53, Old Testament material, but it teaches us about Christ, doesn't it? So that passage is sort of, we would say, living and, and, and active and uh, very much relevant to, uh, to us and our understanding of Scripture and who Christ is. We looked at the 110th Psalm as well. The second Psalm, all three of those passages are used multiple times in the New Testament. We also saw from Romans chapter 4 that the Old Testament is used by New Testament writers in support of their doctrine. So it's profitable for doctrine or, or teaching or instruction. And so in that particular case, Paul establishes justification by faith. People are made right with God by faith, an obedient faith, but by faith. And he supports that or he proves that by going to Genesis 15 and verse 6. What did the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And so you can see there in the Old Testament we find material that's profitable for doctrine or instruction in righteousness. And then we're going to look at a passage tonight that's used several times in the New Testament, which might fall into the category of reproof or correction. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Now this might be a familiar passage to you. It describes Isaiah's experience uh, in the year that King Isaiah died, and he sees the, this vision uh, uh, in the temple and describes it for us. And I think you'll recognize at least some of it. It says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, the source of his sin, you remember. I'm a man of unclean lips. And your iniquity is taken away and your sins forgiven. So here's this experience of Isaiah. Makes a a huge impression on him as it would for any of us. He sees the Lord high and exalted. You know, the, the, the temple is shaking and it's filling with smoke. He's impressed with the holiness of God as these heavenly creatures are flying around. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Which immediately impresses upon him his own unholiness. He is holy, I am unholy. I'm unholy in what I say. And uh, and so he's impressed with his own unholiness or his own unworthiness. But then he's cleansed of his sin. The next verse, verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, 
here am I, send me. And so here's the call of Isaiah, we might say, his, his commission to go teach. Whom shall I send? Who, who, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go, here am I, send me. And then the Lord tells him what to say when he goes. And this, this is a little unusual. It may strike us as, well, it's at least unexpected. He says this, this is what I want you to tell the people. Keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but don't understand. I want you to render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Well, I, I thought that's you, what you wanted them to do. <laughs> I thought you wanted them to hear and to see. And I thought you wanted their hearts to be touched. I thought you wanted them to turn and be healed. And you're wanting me to go and tell them, do not perceive and do not understand. Otherwise, you might turn and, and I would heal you. Why, why does he say these things? Well, we'll just make a few observations. I, I think the Lord is speaking, sometimes we might say ironically, if not sarcastically. Well, keep on listening, but you're not, you're not going to hear what I say. Keep, keep on looking, but you're not going to perceive what, what I'm teaching. Otherwise, if you did understand, if you did see it, you might turn. And we all know that's not what you want to do. And so, in a sense, he's speaking ironically or sarcastically. Notice that the Lord here talks about this people instead of my people. Their relationship, the relationship between Israel and God has been damaged by their sin. I remember Isaiah chapter 59 the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, his ear is not so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And so the relationship between Israel and God has been damaged as a result of their sin. Oh, they're continuing to go through the motions of religion. They're continuing to go to the temple. They're continuing to sacrifice. But the Lord says in, in verse 11 of chapter 1, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of uh, fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I, can endure, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. And so... Their sin, their immoral character, their infatuation with idols has corrupted their worship, has made it none of, of none effect, ineffective. They're going through the motions, but their heart is not there. And so they may worship Him or serve Him with their lips, but their heart is simply not in it. And so their worship is vain. And so Isaiah is to tell the people, continue doing what you're doing. Continue hearing, continue seeing, but not with genuine, genuine interest in learning and perceiving God's truth. Otherwise, you might turn and be healed. We all know you don't want to turn. We all know, you know what your situation is. 
you're in sin, you're stubborn, stubbornly continuing in sin, you want to continue in this, you don't want to hear, you don't want to see, so you just keep right on doing what you're doing, and the Lord will handle the situation. See, God allows people to go in the way they choose. If you go back to chapter 32 of the book of, or chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, and this is, of course, at the end of Moses' life, and children of Israel are about to pass over into the promised land. In verse 27, Moses says this to them, I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? You know, you're stubborn, you're rebellious. You don't want to bend and yield to the Lord. You don't want to conform your life to the, to the Lord. And so you want to walk in your own way. And so just keep on doing that. Just keep right on doing that. God will allow you to do that even if that path leads to destruction. I compare it to Israel's request for a king. Remember over in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel uh, comes to uh, Samuel and he says, Give us a king so that we might uh, be like the nations around us. And over toward the end of that chapter, the second half of the chapter, Samuel tells them what the king is going to be like. He says, He'll take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they'll run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and so forth. He'll take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your field. So you want a king, but it's not going to turn out the way you think it will. But if that's what you want, you can have that. Just keep on asking, you know, and, and uh, you can have exactly what you want even if it leads to your destruction. So I think that's what Isaiah is saying here. Now, I just want to look at this passage in the Septuagint. Now our Old Testaments are a translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Called the, it's called the Masoretic Text. The Masoretes were a group of scribes that copied the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And so, they were very meticulous in it, had a very detailed system as to how to do that. And so what we have is a translation of what's called the Masoretic Text. The Septuagint is not that. The Septuagint is an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so those translators, the people who did the Septuagint, they had a Hebrew text in front of them that they were translating. And sometimes it reads differently from the... Old Testament that we have. And here's a, here's a case in point. Incidentally, the New Testament writers quote from the Septuagint extensively, many, many, many times, and they quote this passage, as we'll see, from the Septuagint. Here's what the Septuagint says in Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Behold, I'm here, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, you shall hear indeed, but you shall not understand. You shall see indeed, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become gross. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. And so what the Septuagint says is consistent with the thought of the Hebrew text that we have translated for us. But it's lays the responsibility squarely upon the shoulders 
of the people of Isaiah's day. You see that? Their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted. Now how is this passage used in the New Testament? So we've looked at it in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go to the New Testament. It's, it's quoted oh, several times in the New Testament, at least, at least five times, and maybe alluded to more than that. In the first instance that we'll look at, Jesus quotes it in Matthew 13 in His explanation as to why He speaks in parables. Jesus taught often in parables. About a third of His teaching in the New Testament is in parable form. And so they asked Him, well, you know, why, why do you teach in parables? And in the process of the explanation, He quotes this scripture. I think I said, let's go to Matthew 13. Hold your finger there and let's look at Mark chapter 4 first. Mark chapter 4. He was saying to him, verse 10 says, As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So you can see the quotation there in, in verse 12. For Jesus says, maybe the best way I know to explain it is, there are two groups of people listening to my teaching, Jesus is saying. There are two groups of people who listen to me. Now, there are insiders and outsiders. Now, you're insiders. You have a desire to learn. You, you want to understand what, what I'm teaching you so that you can embrace it and you can follow it. Now, to you, the parables are illustrations that clarify my teaching. Now, not everybody's an inside. Some people are outside. Now, there are people that are outside, and they don't have the same desire that you have. They don't want to know. They don't want to perceive. Now, they listen to my teaching. They'll come and they'll, they'll listen, but their minds are closed. And so, my teaching to them in parables, it's just, they're just foolish stories. They're, they're just riddles. They're confusing. Now, to you who want to understand, you see the truth as illustrated in the parables. But to, to them, you see, their eyes are closed, their heart is closed, and so the parables, they're, they're just nonsense to them. And so the parables are a tool that Jesus used to make a distinction between those who wanted to hear and know and perceive it and those who didn't. And so in Matthew chapter 13 we have Matthew's account of Jesus' explanation. Verse it really goes all the way back to verse 10. But look at verse 11. To you has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. He'll have it in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. He even speaks in those they're the greatest example of this kind of attitude that you're ever going to find. And then he quotes, You'll keep on hearing, but you'll not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you'll not perceive. The heart of this people have become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. hear. And they, they, they close their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. 
And so, again, just a more lengthy explanation using this passage. See, there are some people today, Jesus is saying, there are people coming to hear me. They're, they're like the people of Isaiah's day. And they don't want to hear. They don't want to perceive. They don't want to understand. And so I teach to them in parables, and it gives them an excuse to, to reject the teaching. That's not true of you. You do want to know. You do want to understand. And so the parables help to clarify truth in your case. Well, in Acts chapter 28, Paul uses this and quotes this passage again. Now, this is the end, right at the end of the book of Acts. Paul has been arrested and he's been taken to Rome where he's awaiting trial. He's there for two years in his own hired dwelling, his own rented quarters. But he's able to welcome visitors. And so he has some, some degree of, well, he's not free to come and go as he pleased, but he is free to allow people to come. And so he tried to do some teaching while he was a prisoner. And so verse 23 says, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. He was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. Some were being persuaded by the, tide, by the things spoken, but others would not believe. When they didn't agree among themselves with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit right, rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Now, when he refers to their fathers, he's implying you're just like them. They're your fathers, you're their sons, and we know that the son is, is like the father. And so what Isaiah said to your fathers applies to you as well. Go and tell this people and say, you'll hear, or you'll keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return. And I would heal them. And so you're just like the people of Isaiah's day. You're just like your fathers. You've closed your eyes. You've closed your ears. You don't want to learn. You don't want to see. And so you don't. We'll look at one other place in the New Testament where this passage is used. John chapter 12. And this one's a little bit different. It's similar in some ways, but it's a little bit different. And so let's turn over there. John 12 verse 36. We'll pick up in the second half of verse 36. Now these things Jesus spoke, and He went away and hid Himself from them. But though He had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. And so this, this, this passage has to do with Jesus' miracles. Even though He had done these miracles, and they had seen the miracles, they, they weren't believing. And He goes on, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which He spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, verse 1. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes, and He hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. And so John uses this passage to explain why people didn't believe in Jesus, though He had done many miracles. And John suggests that God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they could not see and understand and be converted. So let's think about that. First thing I would say is God doesn't close the eyes of anyone who wants to see. God doesn't close the eyes of anyone who wants to see. 
Now, that's the key difference, isn't it? If we want to see, and there are a lot of illustrations of that from the Bible. Revelation 22 and verse 17 says, uh, Let the one who wills, or the one who wishes, or the one who wants to take the water of life without cause. And so you can have that desire to take the water of life. And it's freely given to whoever wills. Let him take the water of life freely. I think about Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She's listening to the Word as Paul preaches the Word. And it says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so here's someone who has an interest in knowing, has a desire to learn. And so the Lord, it says, opens her heart to the things that Paul was saying. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus talks about the city of Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem in His day. Listen to what He says in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. You you didn't want to do that. I, I, I wanted to gather you together, but you were unwilling. And so we can will. We have, we have will. We have, we have the ability to choose, to hear and understand, to see and perceive. We have, we have the will. We can choose to open our hearts and allow the gospel to penetrate and have an effect on our life. Or we can be unwilling to do those things. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, there Paul says that, the Lord would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if the Lord doesn't harden the hearts of people who want to learn. He doesn't close the eyes and the minds and the ears of people who want to see and want to understand. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And that's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. But there are some who don't want to see, and there are people who don't want to understand. These in Isaiah's day, didn't want to see and understand the truth that Isaiah was teaching them, that they needed to repent and change their lives and conform their lives to God's will. They, they didn't want to hear that. And so they persist in their idolatry and immorality. In Jesus' day, there were some who didn't want to see and understand. And so they were allowed to continue in their way. Even though Jesus did all these miracles, you, you would think if somebody saw these miracles, surely that would open their eyes and, to the truth and they would embrace it. But, but these are the people who said, oh, he may be casting out demons, but he does it by the prince of demons. They, they don't want to see what Jesus' miracles say about him. You know, they, they even wanted to kill Lazarus. You know? Lazarus is raised from the dead. And later they sought to kill him because he was influencing people to follow Jesus. Their hearts are hardened. They don't want to see the truth about Jesus. And so God allows them to continue in that condition. The works of God have a double-edged effect. They convince some and they harden others. And some are hardened just as Scripture says they will be. That's John chapter 12. Did you notice that? that in John's comments, he speaks as though, well, it had to be this way because the Scriptures say that people will be hardened. And so, that must, you know, Scripture can't be broken. If the Scriptures say 
some will be hardened and not believe, well then it must be that way. And so their actions fulfill the word of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 verse 1, Isaiah 6 and verse 10. And so here's the use of this passage in the New Testament. And uh, there may, it may be a few other places where it's used or alluded to or quoted, but, but you get the idea of how it's being used. Well, let's make a few applications here at the end. Paul taught that the Scriptures were profitable for reproof and correction. Well, here's a case in point. You can see how Jesus is using this Scripture to reprove some of the people that are coming to, listening to listen to Him. And Paul uses it to reprove some of the Jews who came to listen to Him and yet rejected the message. It's an Old Testament Scripture, but in that sense still very relevant even today. There are people today who don't want to see, and who don't want to hear, and who don't want to understand. Their heart is hardened, and that hardness hinders their reception of the Gospel. And so, my last point is this. We need to take care that we don't close our eyes and stop our ears and harden our hearts to the truth of the Gospel. We need to take care that we don't fulfill the message of Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. Which raises this question. What do, how are people's hearts hardened today? What, what, are they, what happens to them that they close their eyes and stop up their ears? Well, sometimes people love doing what is contrary to Scripture. And so they're engaged in behavior, or they have a lifestyle that's contrary to Scripture. And so when they're exposed to Scripture or confronted by Scripture, they simply close their eyes and close their ears. And, 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 and so they, they don't repent as a result. Now, the Scriptures call upon people to repent. They don't want to repent. And so they simply continue in the course of life that they're following. There are lots of passages to illustrate that. Romans chapter 12, we're not to be conformed to the world, but transformed. Some people like the behavior of the world, and so they don't want to be transformed, and so they don't repent. Isaiah's, in Isaiah's time, Israel was deeply involved in idolatry. They were materialistic. They were immoral. They were irreligious. We talked about them going and offering sacrifices and doing religious things, but their heart is not in it, and so they're irreligious. They're neglectful of the needy and the poor. And they loved it that way. They loved it. And so when Isaiah required repentance, cleanse your hands, cleanse your heart, wash your hands, so forth, they, they simply close their ears to it. There's an interesting passage over in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 5, and Jeremiah is a little bit later than Isaiah, of course. But in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, Jeremiah says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. What will you do at the end? My people love it. They love it. They, they love doing the things that they are engaged in. And so when someone comes along and says, You must repent, well, their eyes are closed and their ears are stopped up. Lots of people living today contrary to the Scriptures. Whenever you hear about homosexuality or you know, the transgender movement and all, that's, that's just contrary to Scripture. And you can teach the Scripture, but it has very little effect, because many of them, their eyes are closed, their ears are stopped up, their heart is not open to it, and, and so they're, they're headed to destruction. 
And that, that's true, not, not, not necessarily of them, but in, in lots of ways. We might be involved in a relationship, just, it's just not right. Or some sort of behavior or some lifestyle. And because we love it, we're hardened to teaching of the gospel. Until people love the truth of the gospel more than they love the world, they cannot respond, right? Until people love the truth of the gospel more than they love the world, they cannot respond. And the gospel, the presentation of the gospel, might just have a, a hardening effect on them, just make, might just make them mad, and, and just more and more hardened and recalcitrant in their life. Sometimes a person might fear the loss of something that's important to them, and so, and so they stop their ears and close up their hearts to the gospel. In Matthew chapter 19, a young man comes to Jesus. He's described as rich and a ruler in some of the other gospel accounts. And he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep the commandments. Don't kill, don't steal, and so forth. And the man says, well, I've done all these things from the time I was, I was young. Now, what, what am I lacking? Remember Jesus' response. If you'd be complete, go sell your possessions, give to the poor. You have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. He went away sorrowful. He was very rich. He had great possessions. He owned much property. And so he, he was, his fear of losing his possessions inhibited his hearing the truth of the gospel. That happens sometimes. People are afraid of losing something. If I become a Christian, if I follow Christ, I'm going to lose whatever this is that's important to me, and I don't want to lose it. And so they shut their hearts and their eyes and their ears. In the passage we looked at earlier in John chapter 12, a little bit further down, verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, if I become a follower of Jesus, you know, I, I like the approval of men. I like walking around in the marketplace and have people, hey, Brother Bob, how are you doing? You're doing a great, you know, I, I love the praise. If I become a Christian, I'm not going get, to get all that praise anymore. And so, I'm, I'm just not going to listen. I'm just not going to see the truth as it's presented. So, we might lose our material possessions or our position. We, our pride might get in the way might cost me something to follow Jesus. I, I don't want to pay the price. And so they're hardened against the gospel. Sometimes the truth is not what we expect it to be. And so we close our ears to it. You know, Jesus didn't fit the mold that some had configured for the Messiah. Uh, I'm sure they, some at least thought the Messiah was going to be a, you know, get together a, maybe a, an army or get together a force and they're going to resist the Roman Empire and the Roman oppression of, of Jerusalem and, and Judea and Israel. And they were going to kind of throw off all, and that's what they expected Jesus to be. I don't know that everybody expected that, but, but some at least expected a Messiah like that. And Jesus comes along and he's meek and he's lowly and he's humble and he's peaceful. He was from Nazareth. You remember? Not Nathaniel sick and any good thing come out of Nazareth. And so here's a Messiah. It's not what I thought he was going to be. And so, people are close to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, you know, to the Jews, the cross 
It's a stumbling block. Gentiles, it's foolishness. How can a Messiah be the victim of crucifixion? That's not what a Messiah is. It's kind of like Naaman. Remember Naaman is told by the servants of Elisha, Elisha sends the servants out, you need to wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleansed of your leprosy. Very simple, straightforward, no fanfare, nothing you know, uh, ostentatious about it. And Naaman said, you know, I, I thought it would be a different way. And he didn't want to do it. <laughs> or that way about the truth of the gospel. So, well, I thought it was going to be something different. And so we don't want to hear the simple truth of the gospel. You ever, in the, in the course of Bible study, come across teaching that is different from what you expected to find? That, that happens sometimes. It may be simply something new. Well, hey, boy, you know, I just didn't expect to find that. And so, but there it is. Something maybe we hadn't considered before. We might sometimes come across something that is a long-held opinion. So in our Bible study, we come across an idea, you know, that's what, not what I always thought about that. And so instead of considering it, examining, if it's true, embracing it, just that's not what I've always thought. And that's, you know, full stop, you know, just not listening beyond that. Or it may be different from what we've heard taught through the years. You know, that's not what I was always taught. And so that's the end of, that's the, end of the investigation. And so sometimes the truth of the gospel is not what we expect it to be. And so we close down, we shut down uh, the, the study. We shut down considering uh, the, what's being taught. Sometimes we'd rather hold on to our opinion than change, in other words. Sometimes we'd rather hold on to our opinion than change. And so we don't see the truth when it's presented to us. We don't hear the truth when it's taught to us. And so we can be very much like the people of Isaiah's day. We saw how that passage is used in the New Testament to describe the people that Jesus taught, the people that saw His miracles. We saw how Paul uses it and applied it to the people of his day that rejected the gospel, well, it may very well apply today as well. See, what the Scriptures say is profitable for correction. Maybe we've uh, said some things tonight that will make us examine ourselves and make some corrections. And it's profitable for reproof. And it may be that in our comments tonight you've said, you know what, I can see myself in that. I, I need to make some changes. So the Word of God is profitable, even in the Old Testament. No, we don't appeal to the Old Testament. It's practices, it's rituals, it's ceremonies, and so forth. No, no, that's been taken out of the way. But the Scriptures are still profitable. They are the Word of God. They're profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof and correction, and for instruction in righteousness. I hope we've been able to see that some. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we're thankful for today, the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity to assemble together and to worship you. And Father, we pray that the things we've done today have been pleasing to you. That's, that's been our aim today, to please you. And our prayer is that you have accepted the things that we've done today. We're especially thankful at this time for the opportunity to open your word and to study from it. Help us, Father, to have eyes that see and have ears that hear and have hearts that desire to understand. And so open our eyes, Father, that we can see what you would have us to see, and we would come to understand and know the things that you would have us to know. And then, Father, help us to have 
the strength of character, the determination, the courage to put those things into practice, and to bring our lives in conformity with what Your Word teaches. Our Father, we pray that we will always be people of the book, that we will go to the book and allow the book, Your book, Your Bible, Your, your Word, to guide our steps and to guide our life all the way through this life and bring us into heaven in the end. That's our desire, Father, and we pray for Your help in that, in that regard. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we offer the invitation tonight if